0: Okay, so on this episode of the LeaderSmith Podcast, we're going to be talking to Craig Von Busick. Craig is someone that I I kind of knew, kind of didn't. We were at at Regent University at about the same time back in the late '90s, uh, and we kind of crossed paths. But uh, I haven't talked to him in like a decade <laughs> or more. Um, and he just wrote a book recently about Ulysses S. Grant, and it's going to be fascinating. Stay tuned.
1: In a world of incompetent bosses, micromanagers, and petty tyrants, one management professor claims that
2: he can help you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow.
0: You are listening to The Leadersmith. Now, here is your host, Darren Gertis. Okay, so Craig, welcome to the show. I'm glad that you could be here. Well, thank you, Darren. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you wrote this book on U Ulysses S Grant and I'm um I- I'm curious why him. Uh, I mean uh, you could write on anyone. Uh and he usually gets short shrift compared to like Lee, right? So why Grant? What what is it about Grant that drew you to the subject?
1: Well, the reason that he gets short shrift is because of what was known as the Lost Cause school. Mm-hmm. And those were a group of uh academics, historians and writers who were pro Confederate. And they were embarrassed that the planter class had pulled the South into a war that basically destroyed the South. And it was all over the issue of slavery. Now, the Lost Cause school would say, oh, no, it was about tariffs. Or, no, it was about states' rights. Well, it would only be about states' rights because of slavery. It was only right, right tariffs and because of cotton and slavery.
0: That's right. I've said the same thing for years. Right. I mean, it was about states rights, but it was about states rights because they wanted to defend that institution. So, yes, but there's more to the story. You know, Hitler Hitler was a vegetarian, but that's not where the story ends.
1: Exactly correct. And really, you know, when you study the uh, motives of the leaders of the South, not only did they want slavery to go to the entire United States, but they wanted to build an empire of slavery that would go into Mexico, Central America, and South America.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it was, um, you know, when they, when the, there's a few different things that happened, but basically the Lost Cause writers said, we need to bring Ulysses S. Grant down and we need to raise Robert E. Lee up. Um, we need to do that because. Grant had such a powerful impact, not only in the war, but as president. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was raised, and when I grew up in school, I was told that Grant was the second worst president that we ever had.
0: Now, this is one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you, too, because Grant has such a terrible reputation. And if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is that this is like modern spin, right, where it's not really about the facts. It's about the narrative that they want to push on people. And that's what was happening with the Lost Cause School.
1: That's exactly correct. To be honest, uh, if you look at things from a fair uh, standpoint, going in with no mind in the matter, I believe that you would come out saying Grant was one of our most important presidents
2: Hmm.
1: because he kept the country afloat during those very dangerous and difficult times after the Civil War. But not only that, he pushed through the anti-KKK laws. He pushed through the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1875, which basically granted all of the rights that were eventually restored in the Civil Rights Act of 1864. And we had to have the entire civil rights movement in order to restore what Grant had pushed through as president in 1875. Sadly, the Supreme Court overturned that law, and that opened the door to okay. 80 years of terror that we call Jim Crow racism.
0: So I want, I definitely want to come to that. I want to go back a step, though, between Grant and Lee first. And like, so I've read about Lee, like he he was no slouch i mean no, he, he was he a great was general an excellent leader um and uh abraham lincoln by sandberg uh i remember distinctly uh i'm pretty sure that's the source i remember distinctly that um what was the first union commander scott scott said that Winfield Lee was scott was worth 10,000 men so lee was was something significant in his, in his own right and you're saying that grant was as good or perhaps better because uh, this is I, a, this, this is an argument that,
1: and, and a, a debate that goes on and on and on. I will give you my perspective. There's no question that, that Robert E Lee was a brilliant commander and Lincoln offered him command of all the armies at the beginning of the civil war. And uh, I think that Lee made a, an awful decision and a mm-hmm. terrible mistake by turning that down. He, what he said was, I cannot raise my sword against my right. own country. Uh, sometimes he would use the word native state. Mm-hmm. But we need to realize that back then they looked at the states as countries. The There was the nation in their mind of South Carolina, the nation of Virginia. Right. And they were brought together in the Union for Mutual Defense Uh, Because they needed to defend themselves. They couldn't defend themselves individually. They knew that against European, uh, you know, the Spanish or the French or the British, but also for trade. But in many of their minds, and remember that Robert E. Lee was the son of Light Horse Harry Lee, which was George Washington's, one of his chief lieutenants. And in the minds of those colonial people, they thought that, going into the Union uh, voluntarily, they could voluntarily get, get out of the Union. Mm-hmm. And so Robert E. Lee followed his native state, and uh, that was, I think, one of the worst decisions that he could have made. And And that's what Grant said in his memoirs. He said, I have great respect for the those who fought against us, but I think that their cause was one of the worst causes that anyone has ever fought for, and that is slavery and Grant yeah. came right out and said very clearly, we know that this war was about slavery, so getting back to your question, um, well while, while Lee was a great commander, we need to realize that Lee never took the surrender of any army. Grant received three huh. army surrenders, fort Donaldson, vicksburg, and of Robert E. Lee himself,
2: yeah,
1: not only that, but grant's When he was uh, promoted to be the lieutenant general, which was a a rank that only George Washington had ever had, Uh, the Congress and Abraham Lincoln saw the victories that Grant had had throughout the West, and they realized, we need our best guy to go up against their best guy in in the East. But he was not only the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Actually, George Meade remained the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Lee or Grant was over all of the armies, more than a million men. Mm-hmm. And so, what you know, people say, well, you know, Grant was a butcher, and he just uh, won by pounding down
0: right. the South. That's but that's the tr- nature of my question because I I have always understood Grant to be Grant to be just this knuckle dragger that just it was just a war of attrition, not a great tactician yeah. like uh, like Lee.
1: Yeah, that's lost cause uh, gospel. Wow. And so but when you look at what what uh, Grant did, he was able to defeat the south using exactly the same resources that the six commanders had before him. But what was the difference? The difference was that he came in and he said, "We will fight them separately to defeat them separately." Up until that point, they would allow certain parts of one army to go and of the Confederate army to go and re-supply uh, and, and shore up the other parts of the army. Yeah. And so whenever there was mer- an emergency, the Confederates would send different parts of their army to different places, and the Yankees didn't do anything to stop that. So that was number one. Number two, he said, we're going to fight them every day, and there will be no stopping. Whereas every other commander before Grant, you'd fight a battle, then you'd retreat, You'd reform, you'd resupply, you'd lick your wounds, you'd bring in some new soldiers, and then three or four months later, you'd fight another battle. And uh, Grant said, no, we're going to fight, and we're going to fight, and we're going to fight every day, and we're not going to let them go. And that's why he said after Spotsylvania, he sent a note to Stanton, who was the Secretary of War, who gave it to Lincoln, and Grant said, I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. Well, it took all summer, all fall, Mm -hmm. and all winter, and then most of the spring, but in the end, he finally won. The other thing that Grant did that was also vitally important is that he stopped the prisoner exchanges because he said, why do we want to give them back healthy uh, soldiers that we could keep in prison? Yes, we lose our soldiers to their prisons. Well, we have an endless supply of new people that we can bring in to reinforce our armies. But for them, every person that's wounded or killed, that shrinks their army one at a time, one at a time, one at a time. And so he cut off the supply. And then the final a- aspect, not only of Grant's strategy, but it was Lincoln's and you had mentioned Winfield Scott's strategy, and that was the Anaconda plan. Grant had always agreed with that. And that was to cut off all trade, all the way around uh, in every harbor and up the Mississippi River. And so Grant continued with that policy and even pushed it further uh, by destroying all of the ports. And Wilmington was the final uh, battle that shut down the final port. And after the Wilmington Harbor battle, uh, families were writing to their uh, you know, loved ones in the armies saying, you must come home We're starving to death. We're going to die without you. And so, from the election of Abraham Lincoln through March, when the army started to fight again, there was I don't remember the exact, it's in the book, but it was something like a 35% drop by soldiers who were leaving without leave from the armies because they had to go home and take care of their families. And so, all of that strategy together combined with the pounding, yes, he did believe in the war of attrition, but in addition to all these other things, and so it's um, one of the things that when you're having this debate, you have to say uh, Lee had a strategy and he fought in Virginia, Grant fought in the entire continent and had a strategy mm-hmm. for the entire continent, and uh, and then the final thing is people call Grant a butcher, but there's a, a strategy or a um, a researcher named Edward Bonekemper. And he did a uh, exhaustive analysis and actually uh, percentage wise, Grant had, or Lee had higher casualties. Really? Yeah.
0: Wow. I have been duped by, by the propaganda and I have a newfound respect for Grant after 10 minutes talking to you. And I'm pretty sure it's only going to get better by the end of this interview. (laughs) I'm really, really amazed. Okay. So you've already sold me that uh, as a military strategist, uh, he was as good, perhaps better than Lee. Okay, I'm al- I'm I'm already convinced. Tell me about h- him as a young man first, like because I've all I I've also read about you know he was kind of lousy businessman and barely making an ends meet, and then went back into the army and found his genius in the army. Is that propaganda or is that legit?
1: It's a mixture, but it's more propaganda than legit.
0: Okay, tell um, me about it.
1: There are a couple things that are part of the propaganda that are also true. So they come out of a little bit of truth, but then they are twisted uh to fit their narrative. And so the truth of the matter is that uh, Ulysses S Grant was an alcoholic. Okay. Now they call him a drunk and they said he was not much of a soldier. That's total falsehood. He was a hero in the me- in the Mexican-American War. Uh, He put his life on the line several times in a very heroic fashion. He was considered one of the best quartermasters in the entire army. And so he had been shipped out west after the Mexican War in the early 1850s to uh, be a quartermaster out there. And unfortunately, that was before there was the Transcontinental Railroad. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so he was not able to take his wife and his two small children with him. And the army pay was so low that um he he felt hopeless. Uh so he tried all kinds of different schemes. It wasn't that he was not a smart businessman, although he wasn't he was not a businessman. So that part of it is true, but mm-hmm. he worked hard okay. and he did come up with some good ideas, they just didn't work out. So, for example, he planted potatoes, but that year there was a huge thaw of the snow in the mountains and it flooded the potatoes, and that was the end of that. He invested in a in a restaurant in San Francisco, and the guy took the money and ran, and that was the end of that. He invested in bringing ice down on a steamship from Alaska to San Francisco, and on the way, the steamship broke down and the ice melted, and that was the end of that. So when these schemes fell apart, he was depressed being away from his wife, and he started to drink, and unfortunately... He was an alcoholic with the disease of alcoholism. When you start to bend your elbow, you don't stop. And so he was caught a couple of different times being drunk on duty. And his commander said, you have a choice of either, you know, resigning or being court-martialed. And he couldn't imagine being court-martialed, so he resigned. He went back to St. Louis, where his wife was from, and her father gave him several acres of land and a slave. So Grant actually owned a slave at one point. So did his wife. She owned several um, to work this land. He worked very diligently. He was actually quite smart as a farmer. But unfortunately, there was a one of the first great depressions, financial depressions that hit right, right when he was farming his land.
0: So this, this was like 1830s or 40s, right? This was the 1850s. Between 1850s,
1: 1853 and okay. And the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861. And okay. so he, um, you know, it wasn't for a lack of work. In fact, a lot of times you'll hear people describe Grant as being stoop-shouldered. Well, the reason was that he worked on a farm and he was constantly, you know, bending over, constantly living, lifting heavy loads, and it caused a, a permanent change. In his shoulders, it wasn't that he was a
2: Uh-oh.
1: you know a, a person. It was because he worked so hard that yeah, this yeah. took place. But so it, at any but rate, after the farm went bad, he tried to do real estate, and the problem with that was that he was uh, he was called on to collect rents, and Grant had been through such difficulty himself. He had a hard time being tough with the with the people not paying their rent. So in that, it was more that he was a man of compassion and not a businessman as you pointed out. So in the end, he was uh, reduced to selling firewood in St. Louis and finally, he and his wife said, you know, uh, Grant's father owned a chain of leather goods stores throughout the Midwest and he had constantly been asking Grant to come and work for him. And Grant finally said, I think, you know, like the prodigal son, we need to go back. But this was also, 1859, uh, just before the outbreak of the Civil War, when the slavery issue was just causing an explosion in America, mm-hmm. Grant was at his lowest place financially. He could have sold that slave, made $1,000, which was a lot of money in 1859. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, he gave that slave his freedom.
2: Wow.
1: And I believe that that shows that something was going on inside of Grant's heart. He saw that this was a And later, he came right out and said, I saw slavery as a growing cancer that was destroying our country. And so I think he didn't want to be a part of it. And so he let that slave go free. He went up to Galena, Illinois, and he worked for his father's leather goods store. Uh, He was a good worker, you know, but his heart wasn't in it because I think his eye was recognizing there's a war coming and I need to be ready. And so it was difficult for him to get back into the army because A lot of the uh, people in power, either they went to the South, uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of the best generals went to the Confederacy, Mm -hmm. or they said, well, Grant's a drunk. We don't want him. And they convinced Governor Yates in Illinois not to bring him on. But Grant went in and volunteered to, well, he was hired to be a mustering officer, which is the lowest of the low. And yet he did it with diligence. He answered questions. And eventually, Governor Yates realized this is a quality person. He named him Colonel. Fremont saw that he was a very valuable soldier, and so he named him Lieutenant Ge- or uh, Brigadier General just about six months later. And the rest is
0: history. Wow! That so that's amazing. And there's a parallel here that I see that uh, just because of where I've been as well. So my my uh, dissertation was on the leadership assumptions of the founding fathers. The founding fathers as a as a group were all terrible businessmen, but their (laughs) genius in government is unbelievable. And I think this is kind of what's going on with Grant. His genius in in the military, in the battlefield, in that situation is unbelievable. But his his aptitude, not aptitude like he like he ran into a bunch of bad things, but that's it. It just wasn't his thing. The founding fathers were all great as lawyers and politicians, but they right. were terrible businessmen. And I think we're you're, seeing you're this
1: absolutely day. correct. And and one of the things that this book focuses on is uh, is the last two years of or not one of the things. The thing that this book focuses on is the last two years in Grant's life. And that all happens after he leaves the White House and he joins with his son, who had started an investment form, firm on Wall Street. But they joined with a man named Ferdinand Ward, who ended up being a complete shyster and and was running a giant Ponzi scheme. Right. And it became one of the biggest Wall Street disasters in American history. So, again, Grant was not a businessman. Yeah. Um, And it caused pain for him earlier in his life. And then it caused pain again at the end. But what Grant did was he said, OK, I have run out of money or he was basically bankrupt. He had $80 to his name. And um, so he didn't know how he was going to make money. But then uh, not long after that, he was diagnosed with incurable throat cancer. Mm -hmm. So now he's dying and bankrupt. And he needs to make sure that he takes care of his wife. Many people had asked him to write his memoirs and he never wanted to do it. He was born or raised a, a good Methodist. You don't talk about yourself. You don't raise yourself up. You don't attack other people, which is what a lot of these other memoirs did.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But now this is the only way that he could make money. And so he ended up partnering with his good friend, Mark Twain, who was a publisher at that time, and spent the last year of his life writing his memoirs. He finished four days before he died.
2: Right,
1: And uh, the, the memoirs a- went on to be the second bestseller of the 19th century
2: it-
1: and made for his wife $450,000 which in today's money is more than $10 million. So in the end, he certainly redeemed himself yeah. and redeemed his reputation.
0: It was a uh, throat cancer or something from cigar smoke, right? Or well,
1: a- we have to now with our scientific understanding, we now can conjecture that it was most likely from his smoking cigars. He actually preferred the pipe, um, okay. but he, um, was, he had forgotten his pipe during the Battle of Fort Donelson and a friend lent, lent him a cigar. And so during that battle, the reporters saw him with this cigar, and so there was a sketch of him and description of him smoking calmly his cigar during the battle. And so after he won Fort Donelson, which was the first big major yeah. Union victory, people from all over the country sent him cigars. So he had cigars for the rest <laughs> of his life. So he changed from a pipe to cigars, and sadly that gift probably is what killed him.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay, so you went all the way to the end. I want to kind of incrementally work through. So we talked about his his young man business failures. So he finds he he gets the lowest of the low kind of uh, position and he's elevated very quickly. Tell me about him as a leader broadly, both militarily and politically. Just how how was he as a leader just in, in broad brushstrokes?
1: Well um my publisher asked me to write a second book, a companion book to the biography, and that's coming out the end of May and that book is called Forward: The Leadership Principles of Ulysses S. Grant. Wow. And so in that I look at some of the key principles that he carried in his life that brought him success. And you and I went to Regent University and it was drummed into our head servant le- leadership. Mm-hmm. And if you were to uh hold up a picture next to Abraham Lincoln of someone in American history that espoused servant leadership, it would be Ulysses S. Grant.
0: But that he, never would have crossed my mind. He like absolutely that, was. Yeah. But tell me how, why. make Explain that and, and uh, give evidence for that claim.
1: Before Grant, um, the other uh, commanders of the uh, Army of the Potomac included people like Hooker, Joseph Hooker, And George uh, McClellan and, uh, you know, a couple other uh, Pope, General Pope, all of them were braggarts. Uh, McClellan, especially, but also Hooker, were unbelievably insubordinate to Abraham Lincoln and disrespectful to Abraham Lincoln. And all of them had this propensity to see themselves as being the smaller army and constantly needing more supplies, more horses more men. In reality, we know uh, that the Army of the Potomac usually was at least a quarter to half larger than the Army of Northern Virginia, and yet they had convinced themselves that it was the opposite. Ulysses S. Grant would send a list of requests. This started when he was out west, and he, uh, you know, as he started to move up the ladder after Fremont recognized his abilities, You know, Fremont, by the way, was the commander of the Western forces at the beginning of the Civil War. And he had been the Republican candidate for president against Buchanan, the first Republican candidate. But he saw this skill in Grant. And so when he promoted him, uh, Grant would send a list of what he requested. And then whatever was sent to him, he would say, okay, that's what I've got to work with. Let's go to work. He wouldn't complain. He wouldn't ask for more troops. He wouldn't ask for more supplies. He would take what was given him and he would employ those things. So that was one thing that Lincoln was like, he's amazing. I I mean, I can't even believe it. In fact, Lincoln got really generous with Grant because he was like, this guy's so different than McClellan and, and Hooker. I want to just lavish stuff on him. And so they truly did in the Overland campaign. It was extravagance. They had more than they could even use. So that was one thing. Uh, Also, Grant was a very democratic leader. So he would be more in the line of the Deming model of leadership style 100 years before Deming, 120 years before Deming, or no, uh, 80 years before Deming. Um, So Grant uh, did not put on airs. He dressed in a private uniform The only thing that you would, the only way you could know that he was a general were the stars on his shoulders. That was it. Uh, He was a a dust covered man on a dust covered horse. Uh, He would lead the troops. Um, Now, when it got into when he became lieutenant general, then it was not appropriate for him to be out front. In Shiloh, he was right out front. He actually got shot, but it hit his sword scabbard and it kept him from being killed. There was a reporter standing next to him at one point during the first day of Shiloh, and they're talking, and all of a sudden that he- man's head got blown off by a cannonball. Wow. Only feet away from Grant. So at Shiloh, Grant was in the battle. Now, once he became Lieutenant General, then that you had to lead from behind because you were a strategist. Lee was the same way. Every time, Lee, every time Lee wanted to go to the front, his soldiers would actually grab his horse and pull him back away from the, the battle. But what Grant would do is he would, um, in the mess tent, he wouldn't sit at the head of the table. He'd just sit anywhere. And he looked just like them. And most of the time, Grant was, they called him the Sphinx because he thought a lot, but he didn't talk a lot. And so he would sit there and he'd listen to all the conversation. And then he'd have a zinger every once in a while. And When he did say something, it was always a, with a punch. But whenever there was a major issue, and a major decision, he would throw it out there to his staff and say, what do you guys think? And they would have these debates. Grant would sit back with his cigar and just listen. Now, he would make the decision, and when he made the decision, it was his, but it was very much uh, in a book called Campaigning with Grant by Horace Porter, who was one of Grant's top aides. He described in detail these meetings and these debates and how Grant operated, and he said, it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Uh, The other thing about Grant was that he was an amazing strategist, and so it looked like he was the laziest man in the Army because he'd sit in the opening of his tent and just smoke or whittle and just sit there, but what he was doing is he was fighting the battle in his head, before he ever gave the orders to fight the battle. And mm-hmm. he did that every single time to the point where when Grant got ill and he was uh, dying of throat cancer, he went into a time where it was true depression, you know, that, that where you realize, you realize he was dying. And he just sat there and just kind of stared off at the wall. And William Tecumseh Sherman came to visit. And Julia Grant, Ulysses' wife, was just saying, this is not like him. I, I don't understand. And Sherman said, mark my words. This is exactly what he did during the war. What he's doing is he's planning his memoirs. And he'll come out of it, and he will win, because that's Ulysses S. Grant. And it wow. happened exactly that way.
0: And, and So he Sherman, was an
1: amazing leader, really.
0: Sherman knew Grant pretty well. I remember a quote about something like, he stayed by me when I was crazy and I stayed by him when he was drunk or something, vice versa. I don't that's remember. exactly correct. Yeah.
1: That is a, a direct quote.
0: Yeah. Um, and now
1: we stay, we we support each other always was the yes, end of that. that's
0: right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Wow. Now, that's-
1: after the Battle of Shiloh, um, the first day was almost, uh, it was pretty much a Confederate victory. And uh, fortunately, the Union was able to stop I think they pushed them back a mile and a half. Uh, the Confederates pushed the Union back a mile and a half and almost to the Tennessee River. But Grant and the leaders were able to finally stop them there. And they knew that they were having uh reinforcements that were coming from uh General Buell. And so that night it was raining, and Grant went from to every commander and said, as soon as it's light, we attack. And Sherman. Heard this and thought, are you out of your mind? <laughs> we need to go across the river and retool and lick our wounds and then figure out what we're going to do from there. So he's coming over to see Grant, and it's like 11 o'clock at night. Grant had actually tried to go into his headquarters, but they had made it into a hospital. And they're cutting off arms and legs left and right. There's a stack of bloody limbs in the corner, and Grant did not like the sight of blood. Ironic, one of the greatest generals, and he got sick at the sight of blood. Now, not during a battle, but after a battle.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, he couldn't stand blood, uh, so he always ate his meat almost like shoe leather. And so um, Grant uh, couldn't sleep in his headquarters, so he found this large pine tree, and it, it was raining buckets, but he's sitting under his pine tree with his coat on, he's smoking his cigar. And Sherman walks up and was going to try to convince him to retreat. But Sherman said something in, in, in Sherman's memoirs. He said, something told me not to say that. And so he walked up to Grant and he said, well, Grant, because they knew each other from West Point. So they were friends from way back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He said, well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? I know and this. Grant, Grant nodded, took a puff of his cigar. He said, yep. And then he said, lick him tomorrow, though.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And David Petraeus said that that was what he would tell his troops at the darkest days in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that uh, gave them courage to keep fighting and to win there in Iraq. So, Okay.
0: You've uh, convinced me now here where I was talking about broad brushstrokes about his leadership. Uh, Yeah, I, I can see it. Tell me about... The end of the war comes, uh, surrender at Appomattox, anything like particularly about that, and then into the politics or the political side, Lincoln's assassination and moving forward.
1: Uh, Lincoln met with Grant, Sherman, and Admiral Porter on what was called the River Queen. And uh, you see that boat in the movie Lincoln. Um, That's where they have their meetings on that boat with the Confederate entourage. Um, And so that was one of their, you know, private meeting places out on the James River. And Lincoln, who had been one of the great wrestlers of the Midwest, there was only one person who ever beat him, and he only beat him because he cheated. Uh, So he was a great wrestler. So he used a wrestling term in that meeting, and he said about the South, let them up easy. And that's just like after you've pinned pinned somebody, you want to help them up as a gentleman. Let them up easy. He said, I don't want hangings. I don't want tribunals. If Jefferson Davis escapes the country while my back is turned, I won't mind that. Because remember, in context, the last great revolution and civil war would have been the French Revolution, Mm -hmm. where there was nothing but cutting off people's heads. It was madness. And Lincoln remembered that and said, We don't want this. And Grant totally agreed with that concept. So at Appomattox, uh, you know, the, the. the Army uh, or the um, the Cavalry uh under Sheridan got out in front of Lee and cut him off the Appomattox River was to the north, the Army of the James was to the south, and the Army of the Potomac was behind them, so they were surrounded and they couldn't go anywhere. They did try to break out um, that morning uh it was Palm sunday and um and as they were they got through the cavalry and And they were pushing out, and all of a sudden they saw the field full of all these blue coats underneath the the crest of the hill, and It was the army of the James swarming in, and They knew that they they you know had to surrender they had no choice and so when Grant uh went to meet with Lee in the home of Wilmer McLean in Appomattox, uh Grant came in, and he was covered in mud. Because his, uh, all of his uniform were way, way behind because they were racing to catch the army of the Potomac the la- or the army of the uh, Northern Virginia. The last thing he was thinking about was a clean uniform. He sure. wanted to nail these guys down and get them to surrender. And so later people asked him, you know, what was going through your mind as you were walking up the steps to meet General Lee? He said, I was embarrassed that I was covered in mud and I didn't have my sword. And I didn't want General Lee to think it was disrespectful, which I think is amazing. Another view into Grant's yeah. soul. So he goes in and, you know, uh, Grant or Lee had said to Longstreet, you know, they had asked him, sir, why are you wearing your very best uniform and that he had kept clean, you know, uh, carrying in his wagon? and He had a jeweled sword. Why are you getting all dressed up for this? And General Lee said to Longstreet and to the other officers there, "Well, I think I am to be General Grant's prisoner, and I need to make a good show of it." And so when these two titans come together, uh, Grant was so laid back that Lee had to say, "Uh, "General Grant, I think we're here to (laughs) to surrender the Army of Northern Virginia." And Grant was like, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry, because." Grant wanted to put Lee at ease. And so then uh, Lee said, what are your terms? And so uh, Grant, you know, basically verbally said what the terms were and they were unbelievably generous terms. He said, basically, we want you to lay down your arms and then go back to your farms and we will not harass you. So they brought a piece of paper. Lee said, that's great, please put it to paper. So Grant wrote this down and he added a line that actually went beyond his authority as a general. But Lincoln didn't say anything about it. And it ended up being one of the most important phrases in American history. And that is, he wrote, if the Confederate soldiers and officers will lay down their arms and go peaceably back to their farms and their homes, as long as they do not break the local laws or the laws of the government, they will not be harassed by the federal government. That was amnesty.
2: Yeah.
1: Now, that was tested. After Lincoln was assassinated, Johnson became president, Andrew Johnson. And Johnson was a southerner. He was the governor of Tennessee uh, who became vice president, then became president. And he wanted retribu- retribution. Okay. He said I want all to- these people broke
0: away and they need to be punished. I want you to hold that thought, finish anything with the war and then have a clean cut. And we'll talk about political side after that. Oh, by the way, I also want to add that for just for the record, that General Sheridan is my collateral kindred. He's my great, great grandfather's brother. Oh, my goodness. Great, great, great grandfather. I don't remember exactly what it was. I'm not in his line, but collateral kindred means he's like I'm not his line, but like really in the family. his his father is also my line, so for whatever that worked. Yeah.
1: Well, he I'll tell you what. Nothing um, here. I just want to put that out there. Sheridan was one of the greatest commanders we've ever had in America. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he
0: he doesn't he doesn't get a lot of play like everybody else, but as a cavalryman, holy cow! What yeah, I mean, he okay. turned he-, he
1: turned the tide. Yeah. And you know, Jeb Stewart Stewart was dead because of Sheridan. Yeah. You know, uh, Sheridan said to uh, Meade, "Let me loose." because Meade was trying to control him, He said, let me loose, and I will defeat the cavalry, which the Confederate cavalry had been just beating the Union cavalry every time. Mm-hmm. There was only one time right before Gettysburg at Brandy Station where the Union won. The rest of the time, the, the Southerners won every time. And so Meade was all upset, you know, this usurper, and he goes to Grant saying, this Sheridan guy, he's this, and he's that. And he, and he said he could go and whip the cavalry and, Grant said, Did he really say that? Meade said, Yeah, he said that. And Grant said, Well, usually when he says something, he means it. So order him to go do it. And he did. And within just two weeks, Jeb Stewart was dead.
0: Yep. And if I have my facts right about the, you know, it was like essentially Grant and then Sherman and Sheridan and in about that order as far as like who really uh, you know was successful on the union side so absolutely correct okay so this episode went over time stay tuned come back again for part two in the next episode and we'll hear about grant as the president and what happened at the end of his life thanks for listening